following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session three of a Wizard of Earthsea discussion. Sorry, I'm a little bit later than usual tonight. I'm um, still kind of adjusting. Those of you who were in class last night will... Uh, uh, I kind of explained last night that I'm, um, I've made some major adjustments both to my software and my hardware setup here in my little broadcasting room. So things are really different everywhere. And I was struggling with some stuff, but I think I've got things set more or less in the pointed in the right direction and, uh, we should be okay. Um, all right. So, yeah, Stephen, my camera is actually kind of worse, but it's different. It's the main. That's why you can see, like, you see the door over there now. Hey, look, there's the door. That's not really great. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Well, I hey, I'm glad it looks good. Um, yeah, it does have kind of the fish. I, I, I do feel like I, I'm getting a kind of a walleye effect here. Not quite sure how, what to do about that. It's also higher up, as you can see. I'm, like, staring up at my camera. Not sure I love it, but anyway, here we are. Um, so we'll we'll see. We'll see. I, I'll still be making adjustments probably in the coming weeks. Um, uh, and let's see. Probably on Twitch, it probably still says I'm playing Pac-Man this evening. I don't know how to make it stop doing that. But anyhow, um, uh, yeah, cool. All right. Um, oh yeah, hang on. No. Devara, that is not your fault. Hang on one second. Let me... I almost forgot to do the one other thing. It's one problem with... There we go. That should be better now. There we go. Now I'm actually, Devora sharing the screen as well, which I should be doing. Um, so, okay. All right. Thank you. One thing with broadcasting in multiple places, I forget which buttons I've pushed and which ones I haven't. All right. Okay. Excellent. Hey, Katrina, you're not seeing any game listed? Fantastic, because I am, in fact, not playing one and meant it to be blank. That's uh, an improvement. Um, okay. Very good. Um, so, welcome, everybody. I want to jump straight into things uh, quickly, but I've got two announcements first. One real quick one, um, which is just a final reminder. Baymoot is coming up very soon, just a couple days away. I'm going to be getting, you know, tomorrow I'm like packing up and, uh, uh, you know, getting my moot case ready and, and, uh, getting ready to hit the road before dawn on Friday morning. So I'm pretty excited to head back out to California. going to go, uh, to San Francisco. I'm going to fly into San Francisco and then, uh, we're going to uh, head out to Berkeley for Bay Moot on Saturday. So not too late. If you want to join us, please do. Uh, and that'll be great. You can just go to signumuniversity.org slash event, uh, and you'll be able to see our, uh, uh, our little page for Baymoot there with the registration link still active. So um, great. Yes, Veronica is so looking forward to seeing you there. Uh, that's going to be it's going to be awesome. Uh, I, I think Baymoot's going to be a lot of fun this year. I'm really looking forward to it. So hope if you uh, uh, if you have the chance that you could still come by uh, here this time. So still time. Please do register if you can. The second thing, and this is a very exciting thing. Uh, today is an exciting day that I've been looking forward to. And that is the launch of my friend Kay Ben-Abraham's uh, podcast book. Um, I did an announcement of this before. So this is Kay's uh, site, kaybenabraham.com. And 
Uh, her book is called The Flower of the Cedar. It is a gorgeous book. Uh, it's a, a, a fantasy novel, as she calls it, a tale of dryads for lovers of myth, fantasy, and the sacred feminine. It's a really, really good book, beautifully written, and even better, beautifully read. Kay is such a talented, she's not only a great writer, she's a very talented reader of her own writing, which is not always true of authors. And um, anyway, so she is releasing this book uh, for free as a serial podcast. So she's going to be releasing a chapter, I think a chapter a week-ish, and the first one has released. So uh, we're partnering with her uh, at Signum. We're we're hosting her podcast for her. I'm really excited to support uh, Kay's work here, uh, and I strongly encourage you uh, to check this out. Yeah, Arthur says he uh, he listened to the intro in first chapter. Uh, he says it's very good and her reading is very evocative. Absolutely, I agree, Arthur. I think I've listened to the first two chapters. I got a little preview. I was very excited, but I stopped reading. I, I could have read the whole thing, but I didn't because I wanted to like share the experience of like reading it as it came out with everybody else. So anyway, but I did read the first two chapters. And Arthur, I think is it when um um uh, when the protagonist meets the uh the 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 wandering uh, uh the wandering witch woman right as soon as she like opens her mouth and starts speaking i was like completely transported it's wonderful um uh so anyway um it is available uh michelle from various uh podcast apps it, i should it should be on uh, on itunes and such uh if you're into that kind of thing um but yeah you can you can uh access it uh through here um i encourage you to uh, uh to check it out because it's really it's really cool um this is a of you know from a from a signum standpoint this is uh it's meaningful in the immediate term because, you know, Kay has been a member of our community for a while. She's been working with Signum and studying at Signum uh, for several years, and she's been a very, a very dear member of our community now for some time. And I have, uh, I, I mean, I remember having a conversation with her about her writing. Um, gosh, I think it was in the hallway at Mythmoot 1, way back when. Um and uh, anyway, so I've been just delighted to see um, uh, to see Kay, uh, Kay's writing uh, developing and this project coming uh, to fulfillment is really great. Um, but of course, it also has a, a sort of a longer term. It's, it's, it's meaningful in a longer term way for Signum as well, uh, in that this is our, our very first small step uh, towards a Signum University Press, which is something that several of us have really wanted to see for a long time. And we're, we're still far away from that, you know, in any kind of really serious way. Um, but it's our first little baby step in that direction and something that I hope we'll be able to develop more and more as we will hopefully be able to partner with more and more people on the publishing side. So, um, Anyway, okay, yeah. So, uh, so, uh, so, Rachel, yes, you can search for the flower of the cedar. That's that would be the title of the podcast. Uh, that would probably be the uh, the easiest way. Um, yeah, Veronica, I'm not sure if she's on Stitcher or not. My own experience with Stitcher is that they kind of do their own thing. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, they added my stuff like. Without consulting me, for instance, found myself suddenly to be on Stitcher and I didn't do anything about it. It's fine. Whatever. But anyway, like I said, I, I remember having an email exchange with them way back, like 2008 or something like that, and being like, uh, who are you and what's going on? Anyway, um, uh, cool. So, um, 
So, okay, good. So, Arthur, you found it in Overcast? Great. Yeah, it should be available uh, in various uh, in, in, in various places, uh, you know, where, where, uh, where you find podcasts. So, awesome. Anyway, strongly recommend. Hope you can get out to, uh, uh, to read this. It's going to be, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be really cool. It is really cool. And it's going to be, you're going to have fun uh, listening to it. Uh, so, uh, good. Okay, excellent. I've got a couple other successes there. I found it on iTunes. Um, uh, found it uh, on podcast podcast addict. Good, good, excellent, excellent, good. So yeah, strongly recommend. Really, really good stuff. Okay, now let us get back to Le Guin and a Wizard of Earthsea. Uh, I'm gonna try to pick up my pace just a touch here tonight as I'm already running significantly behind. So, um. Having said that, I want to I want to uh, do a little uh, intro shtick here before I go to the text. Um, something that a couple of people said last week, and I meant to get back around to this, and we didn't get a chance at the end of class last time, so I wanted to start with this tonight. There were a couple people um, in the comments last week who were kind of confessing, you know, sort of writing comments saying, you know, I I don't really like the protagonist very much. Like, I, I, I'm not, I mean, like, I'm kind of vaguely rooting for him because, like, if things don't go well for him, it will be a depressing book to read. But, um, but I don't really like him. I, I'm not, you know, he, he's, I, I don't really like him. I, to me, that seems actually like a very um, perceptive reading, honestly. I, I, I think that, you know, Ged or, in my, and, okay, in my opinion, and by this I don't just mean, like, how I feel when I read it. I mean, like, the conclusion I draw from reading the text is that I think we're supposed to be resistant to get. On the one hand, we, um, we certainly can understand where he's coming f- from, right? I mean, like, to some extent... I mean, it's like nothing, nothing that he feels is like, you know, that he feels and acts on is, I mean, it's all stuff that I've felt and acted on before, you know, like I, I've made many of the same mistakes that Get has made and I've had many of the same feelings that he has and stuff. So it's not like I find him like monstrous and repugnant or anything like that. Um, but, um, but I don't think that the way that Le Guin has framed his character is such that we're like, she has not think of how little she's said to us about him. We were talking about this last time about she, how she kind of leaves us to sort of backfill a lot uh, into his character, which I think is, which I, I think is important. And I think is, I think is really interesting and deliberate, but apart from the fact that he's the protagonist, what I mean, there are some things that he has going for him. There are some traits to like, right? But we we don't get many of them, right? Like it's it's just this is not a story that goes far out of its way to recruit our sympathies on Ged's behalf. Again, apart from the fact that this is that he's the protagonist. I mean, the only thing that we're given, honestly, it seems to me, is the beginning, right? We're told that he's going to be great, right? We're told that this is like the origin story of the great Archmage Ged, right? Um, but we 
but apart from that, we have like very little indicators that he's anything but a jerk, right? Um, I mean, I he I, is he going to grow? Yes, he is. He is going to grow, right? Um, but um, uh, but yeah, Jocelyn, I agree. Um, you know, uh, Le Guin has mentioned like the narrator says several times that he's not really likable and doesn't really have. Uh, friends and isn't a good friend to other people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's not... It's like, if you don't like him, it's not just you. Nobody else likes him either. The only person who likes him is Vetch, right? And Vetch, it's clearly... It seems to me very clear that that's... It's not a story. I mean, like, part of me wants to... I, I find myself um, sort of wanting to turn the story in some ways, right? Like, I want to imagine... Sparrowhawk as, um, um, uh, you know, as like a misunderstood downtrodden guy, right? Like the underdog that I can root for, except when I actually look at his actions and words, he never actually acts like that. Right. I want him to be misunderstood. Right. Except I don't think he is misunderstood. I think most people understand him perfectly well. Um, uh, and and again, sort of appropriately, don't um, uh, don't like him. Um, you're right, Yana. The Otak does like him. That is true, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, I I think it's this strikes me as just as kind of a thing I wanted to acknowledge, and frankly, a really interesting. I mean, a very daring element of this book, right? You know. It's because it's not just that here's the guy who is our protagonist. Um, the focus of this book is very. It's not like, a, you know, a book where there's sort of one central character, but there's like a large cast of characters that are, you know, so like even if you don't like the central character, you know, there's like other places you can kind of go. There's nowhere else to go in this book, right? Everyone else is kind of incidental compared to get this is Ged's story. And so. The choice on Le Guin's part to kind of be so, I don't know what, unapologetic in these opening chapters about what a git he is when he's a kid, right? Um, uh, it, it's a bold choice. It's it's a very bold choice. And I do think in retrospect, um, I do think in retrospect that it's one of the reasons that I didn't love this. I didn't analyze it to myself. I didn't explain it to myself, but, um, uh, but I did, I, I do think that a dislike of Ged was one of the things that kind of left me cold about this book when I was a teenager, uh, myself reading it. Um, I could recognize in Ged the things that were like me, but of course, especially when I was a teenager, all of the ways in which Ged was like me were the ways that I didn't like thinking about and frankly did not want to acknowledge in myself. It's a lot easier for me to say that from this vantage point than it was from there, right? So um, I, I was, uh, I think in that way, I mean, look, again, in retrospect, I think that this book made me uncomfortable when I was a teenager for that reason. It was, uh, it was a little too, it was a little too close to home in that way. Uh, and, uh, and again, and there was like, nothing, nothing else. Right. Uh, there was, there, there was, there was nothing else that, um, uh, that I, that, that, that like to, to, to rest on, right. To do, um, anyway, so it's, um, 
again, I, 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 I don't say this in any way as a, as a criticism of the book or of Le Guin. I, it seems to me a very deliberate choice. And as I say, a very bold choice and, and a very effectively um, uh, executed choice. I mean, I think it, it, it works very well. And by the time, even by the time we get to chapter five concerning concerning which I have few t- hopes that we will get to tonight. But anyway, uh, uh, even in even by chapter five, he's changing already, right? And it's much easier to start rooting for him. It's much easier to like him, uh, seeing how he is responding to the adversity that he suffers. But up to the point where he brings the adversity on himself, um, he there is really very little... Um, uh, like to recommend him as a person in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. Yeah. Jocelyn, I agree. Jocelyn says we can see the way in which a gifted young person can form without shaping and molding and nurturing of his gifts when there are not sympathetic and loving adults around them. Absolutely. And again, Jocelyn, that's exactly one of the things that, I, that when I was talking about that kind of backfilling, right. In seeing how he grows up, we can kind of reconstruct a little bit more about it. We, we, we can, you can see the holes in his life, right? You can see the lack of nurture that he's had. You can see the lack of uh, a strong parental example he's had. He's, he's had no one either to encourage him uh, and make him confident in himself or to, you know, knock him down and keep him from being too full of himself, right? He, he's, he's not had either one of those, uh, neither the support from beneath or, nor the, um, the pushback from above, right? And, uh, and again, and now again, this is another thing a little easier to see, uh, you know, uh, in my mid forties than it was in my teen years, but yeah, you definitely can, um, you definitely can understand that this is, we are getting a glimpse of a complete character, right? Of a complete psychology. We're just not told all of it. Um, which is again, really fascinating. And Le Guin is so good. Um, yeah, yeah. And Mark, I agree. The tension is that we know he will be a big hero. Um, but, but how, given that he's so dubious when young and, and Mark, of course, in a sense, right. Um, Le Guin kind of draws the line there fairly clearly in the early going. Um, <clears throat> that he's going to be some kind of magical prodigy is like a given, literally from day one of the story, right? From the first time he utters the charm uh, to, to command goats and all the goats obey him to the shock of everybody, to the shock and amusement of everybody and just the shock of his aunt. Um, you know, that's... Um, that's it's, it's clear that he... Uh, is prodigious in his talent uh, uh, for magic. So it's pretty clear that in as much as this is going to be an origin story, it's not going to be an origin story necessarily of like, where did his wizardry come from? It's going to be a story of how did he come to be the greatest wizard ever? Like, how can you, how can you be this big a git and yet be the big, the greatest wizard ever? Right. That's, that's, that's the real sort of thrust of the origin question. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Karita says he's uh, he's like every 
you know, every slightly too talented and smart kid who gets neglected for whatever reason and spends the rest, the rest of their lives trying to prove that A, they don't need anyone and B, they deserve to be loved. Yeah, that, 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 that conflict, right? Those, those conflicting desires, you can see that uh, in, in Ged pretty quickly. Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's, uh, so with that little, pre I just wanted to kind of acknowledge that uh, and could just kind of get that out in the open because I feel that very strongly too. And it seems to me an important element of these, of these early chapters. Okay. The other thing, of course, that I want to pick up on as we're beginning uh, our first passage for tonight is, again, what we've seen before, uh, what, we've, what we've seen in, in other places, and I mentioned it last week, how shadows have been sort of preemptively trailing him from the beginning. We had the shadows that were following him as he was crossing the spring uh, for his naming, right? Um, we, there, were, there were shadows there then. Um, he's already, he's summoned, he's going to summon shadows three, not once, but three times, Right. Um, the final time, of course, when the shadow is going to pounce out and eat his face. The second time, uh, when he did it, of course, in a giant, in an Ogion study, not Ogion, in Ogion study, uh, right, which was the end of our discussion last time. Uh, and then, of course, the first time when he does his first ever great deed, right? Uh, when he, uh, when the, when the, the Kargish invaders are coming, um, and he not only binds the fog and he not only cloaks the town, he summons shadows, right? It's not like the big league summoning of shadows, right? Again, nothing pounces out and eats his face, but there are shadows in the fog, which terrify, uh, the Kargish warriors. And that's, that's a big reason that they succeed, right? And it's, that's probably just illusion, but it's an uncomfortable illusion, especially since he's, with the way that he's improvising and the way that he, you know, in that, um, uh, in that moment, the, the, the first time that he, uh, uh, that he does significant magic, does his own magic, really, anything other than just repeating the charms and spells that his aunt teaches him, um, there are shadows involved from the very beginning, right? So there is a sense in which the story has sort of suggested that this is kind of essentially his destiny, right? That he has been... He, there are going to be, you know, those moments when he makes the decision, those are, those are real. Those are significant moments. And yet this is a part of his story, uh, from very, very, um, very, very early on. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. Okay. So let's, uh, so he's, he made the choice. We ended last time with his choice to go to Roke and to leave Ogion. They went down to the quays, where the harbormaster came hastening to welcome Ogion and ask what service he might do. The mage told him, and at once he named a ship bound for the inmost sea aboard which Ged might go as passenger. Or they will take him as windbringer, he said, if he has the craft. They have no weather worker aboard. He has some skill with mist and fog, but none with sea winds, the mage said, putting his hand lightly on Ged's shoulder. Do not try any tricks with the sea and the winds of the sea, Sparrowhawk. You are a landsman still. Harbormaster, what is the ship's name? Shadow, from the Androides, bound to Hort Town with furs and ivories. A good ship, Master Ogion. 
The mage's face darkened at the name of the ship, but he said, So be it. Give this writing to the warder of the school and on Roke, Sparrowhawk. Go with a fair wind. Farewell. Um, the name of the ship, of course, seems really over the top, but again, that's... That, the immediate juxtaposition, right? I mean, so the shadow thing happens and Ogion gives him his choice and he chooses to go to Roke. And then they go down to the harbor for him to leave for Roke and there's one ship bound in that direction and it's called the Shadow, right? Um, it's clearly not meant to be a subtle coincidence that she's trying to slip past us, right? Um, if it feels heavy-handed to us... I suspect that it's that it feels heavy-handed to Sparrowhawk as well, or at least should, right? Clearly, Ogion is not comfortable, right? His face darkens at the name of the ship. Um, has Sparrowhawk made the right choice? Has Sparrowhawk made the right choice in leaving Ogion and going to Roke? Given what we saw of his rationale... I think he's not made the right choice. I mean, it seems that when you look at what he was weighing in his mind to go or to, you know, to stay apprentice uh, to Ogion or to go and study on Roke. Um, now, we, it's not like Roke is bad. It's, all right. it's not like Roke is evil. I mean, Ogion himself studied on Roke, but um, and maybe Ogion would eventually have sent him, perhaps, um, uh, you know, down the road. Uh, but... Um, um, but in any case, uh, I think that, um, I think he's made the wrong call, right? Whether it means not going to Roke at all and just remaining the apprentice of Ogion and learning from Ogion himself, uh, one-on-one -on -one as his master rather than, you know, rather than studying officially at Roke. I, I don't know how it was supposed to go, but looking at his motivations, it seems like he's done the wrong thing. And that would seem to be confirmed by the fact that it is the shadow that is going to bear him, uh, across the sea. Um, yeah, yeah. And good. James, as you say, as James Stevens, uh, reminds us just before this passage, uh, Sparrowhawk has learned from the people in the town that Ogion is a much more powerful and respected wizard than he originally thought. Yeah, not, not just a beggar after all, turns out. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely, Rachel, his decisions are primarily motivated by pride. Um, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. So Jocelyn disagrees and thinks that he wasn't really yet ready to learn from Ogion. Um, I think that's certainly true uh, in the sense that, I mean, the decision that he made shows that that's true, right? Um, had he been in a place where he, I mean, he, uh, it, what we saw throughout his time with Ogion, almost entirely from beginning to end in his time with Ogion, was that he was he was not buying what Ogion was selling, right? He was not ready to receive um, what Ogion could give. So when I say I think it was the wrong choice, what I mean is we're told two things, right? When he makes the choice. One is his desire to go to Roke, which is primarily pride. The second is this impulse of love 
for Ogion, right? He he wants to stay with Ogion uh, because he now suddenly perceives that he loves Ogion um, and appreciates him. And I can't help but feel that had he had he gone that way, right? Had he chosen with this love that he suddenly found, you know, sort of welling up in him, right? Um, had he chosen to, to, to go with that, it maybe he would have, it would have helped him to be, to get into a place where he could, he could hear what Ogeon was teaching a little bit better. But, um, uh, but, uh, but we'll see. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, going to Roke is a disaster. It's just uh, he's on, you know, the road that he is. He's on, he's on the road that he's on with very bad motivations. And again, to me, the ship is a pretty clear affirmation of that fact, right? Um, the shadow is going to take him to Roke, right? That's, that's just that sentence, the fact that you can utter that sentence, right? It's kind of, it's a bad sign. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, yeah. Now, Christopher, I agree. Um, it is the adversities that occur on Roke that will make him the great mage that he is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that his career will be an excellent example of to apply uh, somewhat out of the blue. My favorite, one of my favorite Tolkien quotes ever, you know, that line in Leaf by Niggle, when Niggle says it could have been different, but it couldn't have been better. That same kind of principle we definitely see at work, right? It's not that... When I say I think he made the wrong call here, it does not at all mean like, oh, if only he'd not gone to Roke. Oh, the road, the, the, the going to Roke was terrible. No, it wasn't terrible, right? It shaped him and made him who he was, and, and it, it, it had a good outcome. But that doesn't mean um, that, still doesn't mean it was the right call, right? Um, who knows how things would have been different, right? Perhaps he could have learned many of those lessons, uh, you know, differently. But in any case, like, uh, he's still, um, he's still heading straight for the, in, in going to, in choosing to go to Roke, he's still heading right for the cliff. Um, he will be a better person after he goes over the cliff. Um, but it is still the highway to the cliff that he is taking. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Um, yeah, Kate says, and at least he recognized his love for Ogion. Um, and that itself uh, probably made him more open to Vetch. Perhaps. Perhaps. Okay. Uh, and as the ship rose on a high swell, so this is, he's trying, the storm is, is going on, right? The storm is blowing them past uh, 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 Roke Bay, right? Or, you know, the, the bay that leads into Roke. And um, uh, he's begged off rowing, right? And he's looking out. And as the ship rose on a high swell, he saw for a moment over the dark smoking water a light between clouds, as it might be the last gleam of sunset. But this was a clear light, not red. His his oarmate had not seen it, but he called it out. The steersman watched for it on each rise of the great waves, and saw it as Ged saw it again, but shouted back that it was only the setting sun. 
Then Ged called to one of the lads that was bailing to take his place on the bench a minute, and made his way forward again, along the encumbered aisle between the benches, and catching hold of the carved prow to keep from being pitched overboard, he shouted up to the master, "'Sir, that light to the west is Roke Island!' "'I saw no light,' the master roared, but even as he spoke, Ged flung out his arm pointing, and all saw the light gleam clear in the west over the heaving scud and tumult of the sea." The shadow is going to take him wide, right? The shadow, turns out, is not going to take him easily to his destination, right? Um, I am I'm not 100% sure what to do with this scene, but the scene struck me as important, uh, first of all, of course, because we have only in, the, only in the darkness the light, again, as we saw from the very beginning. But the... When you're, when you've been having the issues that Ged has, and you've been involved with light and shadows from the beginning, and you're on a ship called the Shadow, uh, uh, and you're um, uh, surrounded by darkness and in risk of destruction, and you see a gleaming light, it kind of seems important, right? So I wanted to, start to talk about this a little bit. Um, uh, he is. Um, yeah, Yana, that's a really good question. I was wondering that too as I was reading it. Are, are, are we meant to take this storm as as Roke sort of rejecting him, right? Um, like he's trying to go to Roke and he's not able to again. And Yana, I couldn't help but think since I was already really uncomfortable about the choice that he had made, or rather really uncomfortable about the reasons for which he had made his choice, um, it seemed kind of doubly ominous, right? Um, like, it's just it, something is keeping you. Something is keeping you from Roke, whether it be Roke itself repelling him or whether it be, you know, sort of his darker destiny, right? The shadow, uh, which is about him and connected to him. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Mandy, that's a really great observation. Um, in his choosing, he is choosing... Uh, the the fast and painful path to greatness as opposed to the slow and safe one. Yes, yes, it it does kind of end up that way. I mean, he certainly acknowledges that Ogion's path is slow, and it might be safer. I think it would be safer, though goodness knows he's already gotten up to mischief enough in, during his time with Ogion, right? Um, but um, but certainly. The fact that he is choosing the fast path to greatness, he doesn't realize it's going to be the painful path, right? Um, but again, that even thinking, Mandy, back to this scene, right? Um, we can get this sense of you know his path is not smooth, right? His passage across the sea is not smooth. His pass, his path towards towards his goal, which is here embodied in Roke Island, right, where he's trying to go for, to to study in wizardry. Um, is uh, is this is not going to be this is not going to be easy. This is not going to be clear, and he might have to. T he may end up having to take a very roundabout road there, right? But he doesn't. He's able to go through, and it's not by his art, right? Um, he can see the light and the darkness before anybody else sees it, right? The master of the ship doesn't see it. Um, the uh, the steersman dismisses it as the light of the setting sun. So there's an insight that Ged has. There's a perception that Ged has 
he's able to see the light in the darkness. And that seems important, right? That, that does seem important to me. Um, yeah, yeah. And Korea, that's a really good point. He, he, can't, he can't follow the light on his own, right? No, he can't. He's helpless to get there. He does rely upon... It's only by convincing... Uh, first trying to convince the steersman and then finally convincing the, the master, right? The, the, the captain of the ship, that he's able to do it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I see. I agree, Karita. If the people on the ship don't agree, it's not going to matter how much insight he has. Um, yes, only on the shadow, the light. Stephen, that's exactly the kind of thing that I couldn't help but think, as uh, as as I was reading in this passage. Right. Um, yeah. Um, what does it tell us? What do we learn? I don't know what we learn from the fact that he's able to see it, other than. I mean, certainly it seems to map on to his sense of his own destiny, right? I mean, he 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 knows, right? Like Roke Island, he is able to see Roke Island. He he is drawn to Roke Island. Um even when the storm is trying to keep him away, it can't. Um but again, there's no magic in that exactly. Um Yeah. Um Melanie, good, I agree. Uh, Melanie is pointing to this passage as um, an alleviation, like that is to say, this uh, it's a it's a passage that shows that um, get isn't a, a complete and utter get, right? It could be worse. Like he's willing to do his own share of the work. He doesn't act, you know, too proud to work or expect to be served or anything like that. Um, uh, yes, yes, uh, he he could. He is he is arrogant. He is proud. He thinks very highly of himself, and he thinks he does not tend to think very much of other people. But it could be way worse than it is. Uh, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. Um, yeah, Kate, what a wonderful way to say that. Uh, Kate Neville says, these first chapters are truly more question than answer. Yeah, I agree. And I'm kind of willing to just sort of say, yeah, I don't think I fully understand this. I can see how it fits into the shape of the story, but I don't get it yet. But let's go on. Maybe we'll get it later on. Ged stepped forward. It seemed to him that he had passed through the doorway, yet he stood outside on the pavement where he had stood before. Once more he stepped forward, and once more he remained standing outside the door. The doorkeeper inside watched him with mild eyes. Ged was not so much baffled as angry, for this seemed like a further mockery to him. With voice and hand, he made the opening spell which his aunt had taught him long ago. It was the prize among all of her stock of spells, and he and he wove it well now. But it was only a witch's charm, and the power that held this doorway was not moved at all. When that failed, Ged stood a long while there on the pavement. At last he looked at the old man who waited inside. "'I cannot enter,' he said unwillingly, "'unless you help me.' The doorkeeper answered, "'Say your name.' Then again Ged stood still a while, for a man never speaks his own name aloud until more than his life's safety is at stake. I am Ged, he said aloud. Stepping forward then, he entered the open doorway, yet it seemed to him that though the light was behind him, a shadow followed him in at his heels. He brings his shadow with him uh, into 
rogue. Um, yes, Brian, I agree. It is telling that he immediately views this as a mockery rather than a test. Absolutely. It does tell us something uh, about him there, doesn't it? And you can see what the test is, right? He cannot come in. He thinks that he should be, like, nobody should be able to stop him, right? He's got this awesome opening charm that he knows, right? And that he's going to say. Um, and, uh, but he can't do it, right? It is not until he unwillingly says, I cannot enter unless you help me, that he's able to go in. And that seems like a perfectly fair kind of admission to want a student to make before they begin their studies, right? It's it, it, certainly the, the, the kind of humility that he is brought to show here at the gate is certainly a very minimal, like the minimal kind of humility that one would need to show in order to be prepared to learn and be a good student. Um, but um, his attitude from the beginning is, I can do this. Let me prove myself, right? I will not be, I will not be mocked. I will not be daunted. Um, there is courage there, right? Um, there is resourcefulness there. But there is much, much pride there. Um, and, um, yeah. Um, and, he, Brian, I, you know, I, I also agree. I'm not sure that he does learn the lesson, right? I mean, he, he completes it. I mean, he does say, though he says it unwillingly, he does say, I cannot enter unless you help me. He does acknowledge that. So that's kind of a win, right? But he doesn't seem to really internalize... We don't see much evidence after this that he's really internalized that. The second step, of course, after the confession of one's own inability to enter, um, is the saying of his name. Um, you don't say your own name aloud until more than his life's safety is at stake. Um, so there are two parts to this test, Right? The first part is the humility part. The second part is trust. Um, also, it's um, this is like this is um, this is it's like the tuition fee, right? I mean, it shows the level of commitment. I mean, that's a that's a that's a big price to pay. It's a big ask, as we're told, by the school, right? Say your name, and then you can come in. You have to give us that. You have to give us your name. You have to, you have to give us this power over you. You have to relinquish this, you know, this privacy, this, this, this control over yourself and give it, be willing to give it to the school, to your masters, right? And if you do, then you can come in and be a student here. Um, so yeah, Mark, I agree. It's both trust and vulnerability. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and therefore, commitment. Right? Are you willing to do... If you're not willing to do that, then you can't be a student there. Um, yeah, Kimber, exactly. is to prove how much he wants it. That's exactly right. Um, and then there's the shadow. The shadow is following him already. Remember that the shadow was there. It wasn't just something that he saw, 
right? That was not just a psychological effect or something like that. Ogion saw it too, remember? Uh, when he, in his exasperation, said to Ogion that he'd been with him for like ever so long and he'd not seen anything yet. And Ogion was like, you've seen something now, right? Implying that he saw it too, right? There really is a thing there. So there appears to be really a shadow, um, not just him seeing something in shadows, him being afraid of darkness. Uh, there is, uh, there is something actually there, right? Um, a shadow which defies the light. The light is behind him, but there's a shadow following him. It's not supposed to work that way, right? There is an independent shadow, uh, moving behind him. Um, now, Jocelyn, that's a really interesting question. Do we know that all the students, like, that all students have to give their names before they, uh, before they enter? It's possible that this is just a test for Get. If so, it's a really good one. Um, I... It has the sense to me of something that's like the universal uh, thing, and it certainly is something that seems to me to make sense. Um... Uh, something that seems to me to make sense as a standard policy uh, on Roke. Um, so I think that that would all work, but um, but I'm not really... I don't, I don't have any clear evidence for that, so that's just a theory. Um, and I agree, Mark, we don't receive any indication that the old dude here, right, the master doorkeeper, or door... What's his name? Doorkeeper, right? Master doorkeeper? Um... Uh, that he's, we, we don't have any evidence that he sees the shadow. We know Ogion did uh, when he came in shining with light. Um, but uh, we don't have any reason to think that the Master Doorkeeper sees it. Um, yeah. Okay, good. So, by the way, yeah, uh, Mark says, uh, I'm pretty sure that we learn in later books that all students need to give their name. I'm pretty sure of that, too. Uh, but, um, yeah, so by the way, one of the, um, one of the reasons in general, there have been a, a, several times when, uh, someone from the, someone in the discussion has referred to things that are said or done, or like, we learn more about this, like later on in a future book. Um, I'm in the context of discussing A Wizard of Earthsea, the, this book, that is, I'm reluctant to think about that very much at all. And here's the reason why. The reason why is that we're talking about this book. And so I don't just mean that in the sense of like, let's not wander away and talk about other books too. What I mean is, just because she says something in a future book doesn't necessarily mean that that's part of this story. See what I mean? That is to say, what I usually find when reading a series of novels is that uh, there's a lot of retconning going on, which is great, right? Um, that's what should be happening when you're writing a series of books and the story is growing, right? As you go and things that you didn't understand yourself very well, you discover what they mean, right? You you learn more about stuff as you go and things that, you know, the the the, the big picture unfolds and 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 uh, and and resolves as it moves forward. And so, yeah, if you want to think about 
this theoretical whole that contain that is the series, right? That contains all of the books. Um, if you kind of imagine all of the books kind of put together and you, which involves, by the way, a process of like reconciling things and sometimes smoothing things out. Um, then, you know, in that case, it's, uh, you know, then you can definitely think about it as, as, as relevant here, but it's not, you know, it's not a part of this story necessarily, right? Even if she did say it in the next book, it's not necessarily uh, a part of this story. It's part of that story. Um, and um, anyway, you know, but that's, that's, uh, um, again, I, certainly, you know, I hope everyone understands that again, that I also don't mean that as a criticism. That's just how things are, are supposed to be. And I don't mean that it means that, uh, you know, Le Guin is, you know, being slipshod about stuff, or maybe she did have all those things already worked out and just didn't talk about them in this book. It's quite possible. But the point is, she doesn't talk about them in this book, right? And so, therefore, they're not part of this story. Um, yes. By the way, what I just described about a story and a world growing and discovering more and more and everything about it as you go along is the entire reason why I am so passionately opposed to the reordered chronological chronicles of Narnia. Um, why that makes me just furiously angry um, because you lose that you lose. That is a series which grows a lot. Those are stories which, and that process of growth um, is it, to me is a, is a, it's, it's, it's a huge part of the enrichment and the retroactive enrichment of the other stories. And you just, don't you it's all blown out of the water uh when you read them in the wrong order drives me bananas um but anyway okay so <laughs> just always start with the lion the witch in the wardrobe one of the consequences of starting with anything else is you make the lion the witch in the wardrobe a much worse book but anyway back to wizard versity okay let's keep going this is the moment when Sparrowhawk meets the Archmage. As their eyes met, a bird sang aloud in the branches of the tree. In that moment, Ged understood the singing of the bird, and the language of the water falling in the basin of the fountain, and the shape of the clouds, and the beginning and end of the wind that stirred in the leaves. It seemed to him that he himself was a word spoken by the sunlight. Then that moment passed, and he and the world were as before, or almost as before. He went forward to kneel before the Archmage, holding out to him the letter written by Ogion. I always like to think that this is pretty much the experience that students have on the first day of class with me all the time, right? They come in and like, as soon as they sit down in the class, you know, like all of a sudden, you know, in that moment, they understand the singing of the birds. The, light it, the whole world suddenly makes sense to them, right? I figure most of my students have had this experience at some point or other. But uh, anyway, this is a, this is a beautiful moment, right? And it's, um, in the moment his eyes meet the Archmage, um, there is a kind of, you know, the Archmage is himself such a part of, like, the order of things, right? That that, like, entire order resolves into, you know, a comprehensible thing to get when he is making eye contact uh, with the Archmage. Um, that's, um, that's, that's really cool. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jocelyn. Jocelyn says, totally had that experience in episodes one and two so far of this class. Well, there you go. Excellent. Very good. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, so... Yeah. Oh, that's a really interesting connection, Kate. Kate uh, was uh, thinking of Sigurd tasting the dragon's blood. Um, uh, yeah, I get that that sense of like, and, you know, and suddenly understanding the speech of the birds and everything. Yeah, it's not the same, of course, but yeah, there is that that moment of transformation, right? It, it, I mean, you're right, Kate. Ma- magic has happened here, right? Um, is the archmage deliberately giving Ged a glimpse? Is this a kind of uh, like teaser for your magical education, Ged, right? I'm going to give you, I'm going to help you to perceive a glimpse, um, you know, of what, like, this is what you're going for. This is what you're shooting for, right? In order to be a wizard, in order to be, um, in order to be a master of majory, right? You have to understand the singing of birds, the language of the water, the shape of the clouds, the beginning and the end of the wind that stirred the leaves, um, to be a word spoken by the sunlight. That's fantastic. Um, uh, by the way, I always thought that, I, I, I thought that would be a really great, um, Twitter bio, by the way, a word spoken by the sunlight. Um, but anyway, um, I think that's, uh, I think that's really neat. Um, and yes, exactly, James. These are all things that Ogion tra- was trying to teach him. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's that's um, it's one of the things that I was thinking about too. Like you think about the 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 one explicit lesson we saw Ogion giving him, right? Um, that is about the 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 what was it? The forfoil, the plant, right? When he was asking, what's its use? And uh, Ogion was trying to teach him it's more about the use. It's more. It's about more than the use. Um, yeah, so um, that glimpse that he gets is exactly, you get the sense, this is what, this is what it was. Why was Ogion so content to walk in silence, you know, through the landscape, doing very little, saying almost nothing? Because you, I get the sense anyway that this is exactly the world that Ogion lives in, um, uh, and uh, that's really pretty, uh, pretty wonderful. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Brian, I agree. He does have to understand him himself as one part. Uh, of a larger whole. It's another lesson that he hears in this moment, but doesn't internalize. Yeah, 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 I agree. Um, That kind of connectedness, right? It's not just like, now, you know, I understand all these things, that, that it's not just that he is at the center and he, like, everything is open to him now. And, and in the midst of all of these things, the singing of the bird, the water falling, the clouds, the wind stirring the leaves, and in the center, Ged, the master who understands all things and all things come back to him and center on him. Uh, no, because he himself is a word spoken by the sunlight. In a sense, he's less than anything, right? He's, he's less even than the sunlight. It's, he's just a word spoken by the sunlight. Um, 
just a, a kind of uh, a kind of echo, right? Um, and yeah, James, I agree. A word spoken by the sunlight is the opposite of the shadow. Yeah, it says he's going to feel very strongly later on. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Ged turned to leave the courtyard, wondering where he should go. Under the archway, he was met by a tall youth who greeted him very courteously, bowing his head. I am called Jasper, Enwit's son of the domain of Aeog on Havnor Isle. I am at your service today, to show you about the great house and answer your questions as I can. How shall I call you, sir? Boy, what a jerk, huh? <laughs> wow, that was really offensive. Now it seemed to Ged, a mountain villager who had never been among the sons of rich merchants and noblemen, that this fellow was scoffing at him with his service and his sir and his bowing and scraping. He answered shortly, Sparrowhawk, they call me. Um, yeah, yeah, no, uh, yeah, Jasper really sounds quite polite. Now, it's interesting, if you imagine this speech on screen, right? It's one thing to read this on the page, but cast an actor, right, and have the actor deliver exactly these lines, right? Um, and it could be done in lots of different ways, right? So um, I'm not going to be the defender of Jasper, but certainly there is nothing intrinsically in these words uh, that suggests anything but politeness uh, on Jasper's part. On Jasper's part, what is Jasper's flaw? Right? What is Jasper's problem here? What is his? You know, what is that he? Um, what makes Sparrowhawk feel self-conscious? Right? In the end, this is all about Sparrowhawk and his reaction. He's a hick, and. You know, I, I said, is who knows, you know, little kid raised in the mountains in West Virginia. I was a hick, too. He's a hick um, and assumes, therefore, that Jasper is mocking him, um, scoffing at him with his service and his sir. Um, why should he be? Right. Um, especially given the fact that um, the fact that. Um, Get in that moment was just wondering where he should go, and then here's this very courteous youth greeting him and offering for no reason that we see and no reason that we ever learn. Like, there's no catch to this, right? He's just, um, it seems to be just being polite, generous, and kind uh, to Sparrowhawk. But Sparrowhawk is insecure, very insecure, Yana, very uncomfortable, very aware of his own limitations, very conscious of being a hick, right, in this moment, and uncomfortable with this. Um, and uh, now it is true, Ian, that people had been speaking strangely to get all day, but even there, um, his reaction was sort of suggestive. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Brian says it seems that Jasper is specifically that Jasper specifically is sent to Ged as another test. Again, I don't know if that's explicit on the part of the Masters of Roke, but um, it certainly kind of ends up that way. And if it is a test, it's not one Ged is going to pass. Exactly. Um, yeah, and Stephen, you're right. We don't have any... We've never met anyone... We don't know within the culture of Earthsea how over-the-top um, he's being. Right. I mean, this could be dripping with sort of obvious sarcasm in context. Um, but again, I, I don't see any 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 real I don't see anything to object to, um, apart from the fact that he spends quite a long time giving his own title and with son of the domain of Aeolg on Havnor's Isle, but not really because he doesn't even say who Enwit is. Right. Um, he doesn't give a title. He just says his name, uh, his father's name, what domain he's from, and what isle that's on. So that's not objectionable. No, sorry, so I can't even say that. It turns out he is a nobleman, right? But, uh, so the fact that he's mentioned his father maybe is a kind of a tell, but, you know. Um, but yeah, no, I don't think there's any there's anything objectionable here. Um, when I said that I think that Jasper's a jerk, I don't mean he's being a jerk here. Yet he will be a jerk, but he will act as a jerk towards uh, Sparrowhawk. Um, but I agree, he isn't really yet. And you're right, Devor. The narrator does say greeted him very courteously, uh, without any qualifications. So this seems to be 100% Ged's problem here. Um, and then they go up onto Roke Knoll, and uh, Jasper. Uh, invites him to show what he can do, right? I have both skill and power, Ged said. Show me what kind of thing you're talking about. Illusions, of course. Tricks. Games of seeming. Like this. Pointing his finger, Jasper spoke a few strange words, and where he pointed on the hillside among the green grasses, a little thread of water trickled and grew, and now a spring gushed out, and the water went running down the hill. Ged put his hand in the stream, and it fell wet, drank of it, and it felt wet, drank of it, and it was cool. Yet, for all that, it would quench no thirst, being but illusion. Jasper was, Jasper, with another word, stopped the water, and the grasses waved dry in the sunlight. Now you, Vetch, he said with his cool smile. Vetch scratched his head and looked glum, but he took up a bit of earth in his hand and began to sing tunelessly over it, molding it with his dark fingers and shaping it, pressing it, stroking it, and suddenly it was a small creature, like a bumblebee or furry fly, that flew humming off over Roke Knoll and vanished. Um. Good. Okay. Um, now, I do think that Jasper is discourteous to Ged uh, here on Roke Knoll, right? He does seem to be going out of his way to make the new kid feel self-conscious to show off in front of the new kid, right? Uh, it's pretty unclear to me how much of these illusions Jasper could do, but like on the day he arrived uh, at, on Roke, right? Um, so it's, um, you know, the way that he is goading Ged is unkind. Um, but of course, Ged has already been rude to him multiple times now. Um, so again, not, you know, I'm not... Uh, you know, the defense attorney for uh, for for Jasper. Um, 
but uh, uh, but definitely, I mean, but he's had a little bit of provocation uh, so far. It's pretty obvious that Ged thinks pretty highly of himself. Um, the illusions are really interesting. I love the the water that you know that you can feel it and it feels wet. You can drink of it and it, and it is cool, but it will quench no thirst, being but an illusion, right? Um, the tricks. Games of seeming, right? Uh, the things that they can do to make things appear, but it's it's the real uh, substance of things. Um, now, Jocelyn, you're right. People, there there are illusionists like the tricksters and stuff, um, but the, and and we know that they taught the things that they knew to Sparrowhawk in back in his village, even right. Um, but clearly nothing like this, nothing of this level, nothing of this quality um, is he able to do. Um, one of the things that I think is one of the ways in which these illusions, the the use of illusion in general on Roke uh, among the apprentices, um, and with this scene in particular as being really our introduction to illusion in this way, Appearance without substance behind it, right? Um, in Shakespeare's vocabulary, um, in the Renaissance, they love talking about like the outer appearance and the inner being of a thing, right? Um, and those two things ideally should line up, but they often don't. Um, and the word in Shakespeare's vocabulary, the word that Shakespeare would have used for the inner core, the inner being, the true nature of a thing was essence. That's the, that's the word that uh, he would have used when we talk about their essence. So if you hear a Shakespearean character talking about, for instance, their glassy essence, uh, it means their, their inner being, which is like a mirror, reflecting, of course, the image of God. Uh, in which humans are made. Um, but anyway, essence was the word. Does anybody know the word for the outer appearance? The word that Shakespeare would have used? If if your essence is that core of your being, your outer appearance is your shadow. Shadows and essences, it's another thing that I can't help but think of. And again, we seem to be very interested in this book so far, in the difference between in Shakespearean terms, shadows and essences. Um, true change, right? Getting at the, you know, the naming of things is all about their true being, their true essence. Um, coming to understand and know the real, the real nature of things, right? The whole nature of things, as Ogion was trying to teach him, as he got that brief glimpse of uh, in the... Uh, um, yeah, seeming is very is very common. Uh, seeming is is a, a, a favorite word of Shakespeare's, uh, James and Christopher, no question. Uh, they like that word a lot. The technical term, the technical noun there is shadow. Shadow in essence. Um, uh, so when you hear Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare characters talking about the shadow of things, it means the outward appearance. Um, I, 
you know, do I think we're supposed to associate that with with, you know, Ged's shadow here, the shadow that's following him around? I'm not I'm, I'm not going that far necessarily. Um, it may be just a word association on my part, but it seems kind of interesting to me that although light and shadow is one of the things, of course, that we're very interested in in this story and is very connected with the idea of Ged's shadow. Um, yet this relationship between, in Shakespeare's terms, essence and shadow is another thing I think that we're very interested in in this book. Um, again, that's what names are all about, right? Like Sparrowhawk versus Ged is very shadow versus essence, right? Um, what is the true nature of thing? What is the true being of thing? And when you know that, when you understand uh, what things really are, that is the, the heart and essence Um that is the heart and essence of um, of of majory, right? Of wizardry. Exactly, Christopher. If we shadows have offended, right? In Puck's last speech to the audience, right? Because when Puck is saying that at the end, if we shadows have offended, he's saying we shadows because he means like the the characters. Like it's not actually Puck, right? It's a guy wearing a Puck costume, so he has the shadow. Of Puck, but not the essence of Puck. It's not actually Puck. That's not that's not actually Theseus over there, right? They're just shadows. The uh, stage is all about shadows and shadows and essence. It's one of the reasons uh, you know, you can see Shakespeare playing with that fact on multi, on very on many meta levels all over the place, right? Um, same kind of thing when Shakespeare does that really fun thing where you know where he's like, uh, where he plays with the like. You know, uh, the girl who dresses up as a boy pretending to be a girl, but is actually a boy who is in drag in the first place on the stage. Right? I mean, that, all that, you know, kind of the different levels of shadow and, and, and piercing through all the layers of shadow towards the essence. Um, anyway, yeah, all, all that stuff, all that good stuff. And I'm not saying, again, it's not that same kind of dramatic instant, uh, interest here. But again... Um, Yet for all that, it would quench no thirst being but illusion, right? Is this real or is this just an illusion? Um, do you have the true name of things? Can you really, in order to master, you know, and we'll, 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 we'll get to this in just a few minutes, uh, you know, the names of the sea and stuff like that, right? Um, I, I think that this, uh, this concept, although I don't think it's necessarily... Um, uh, what um, uh, what Le Guin is necessarily referring to uh, with, when she's with her talk of shadows, it seems to me relevant. Um, Brian, I agree. The the illusions have no real effect, but they also have no cost. Real changing magic has consequences that must be understood. Illusions are free. To the apprentices, yeah, I agree. One thing that kind of interested me, Brian, about the, um, about the, uh, the illusions is there are some effects, and they're small, right? But like when um, when Vetch here turns the blade of grass into a bumblebee that flies humming off over Roke Knoll and vanishes, the the piece of grass does end up over there. We see this later on at the party right before the disaster um, when Vetch is throwing chicken bones, right? And the chicken bone turns into, what does it turn into? A bird, 
right? And then Sparrowhawk throws a crust at it, and the crust becomes an arrow which shoots the bird, and they fall. The, isn't it something like that? I'm forgetting the exact details. But when that happens, then both bowl and cr- then both bone and crumb fall to the ground over there where they collide, right? So it's just illusion, except the bone does move, right? Um, so it's 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 not like nothing at all, in fact, happens. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yana says, are we meant to believe Ged is truly ignorant of changing magic? Is he so sheltered from it? Yeah, I think so. Um, he doesn't seem to be able to do any of this. Does he know? Now, again, I'm forgetting already who was saying, um, uh, who was saying this already before about how common it was like that. We saw like traveling jugglers and illusionists who did illusion stuff and taught them to get even back in his village. Um, yeah. I think there's a reason why Ged does nothing here, though, is that he knows what he can do is nothing near this good. And he doesn't want to do something inferior. He doesn't want to show himself to be inferior, even to the boys who have been here and studying already for a while. Right. So it's not that I think he can do no illusion at all, but he can't do what Jasper just did. He can't make an illusory stream, which looks and feels and tastes real, but isn't. Um, and yes, the real changing magic is, is doesn't that's that's pretty advanced. Um we learn that that doesn't happen. Ged starts learning that while he's still apprentice, but he shouldn't. Uh, we're told that the Master Changer had uh, acted unwisely in doing that. Uh, so real change is uh, is advanced and difficult and unusual. Anyway, here's Ged's response. Ged stood staring, crestfallen. What did he know but mere village witchery? Spells to call goats, cure warts, move loads, or mend pots. I do know such tricks as these, he said. That was enough for Vetch, who was go- who was for going on. But Jasper said, why don't you? Sorcery is not a game. We gauntishmen do not play it for pleasure or praise, Ged answered haughtily. What do you play it for? Jasper inquired. Money? No, but he could not think of anything more to say that would hide his ignorance and save his pride. Jasper laughed, not ill-humouredly, and went on, leading them on around Roke Knoll. And Ged followed, sullen and sore-hearted, knowing he had behaved like a fool and blaming Jasper for it. A classic example of one of those scenes that I could relate to only too painfully uh, when I was a teenager, and which I think led me to dislike this book when I was a kid. Um, but, um, yeah, Devorah... I that I think is exactly right. That's really interesting, right? The magic that he knows, as as Devorah says, I'd rather have a real wart cured or a real pot mended than fake water. Um, there's a different high road he could take. If he wants to take a high road, right, he could take a different high road and say, you know, you know, you make fun of goat herding, but goat herding is useful. What's the use of your illusions, right? Um, I can cure warts. That's handy. Right? <laughs> it's it's real nice if you've got a wart. Um, I can mend pots. 
so um, anyway, I um, uh, and Yana says, why doesn't he explain how he saved their village? It's a great question. You'd think he has at least one really impressive story he could tell, right? And Yana, the only reason I can think of that he doesn't respond with that here is that he doesn't, having seen what Jasper can do, he doesn't think it's going to measure up, right? It's not going to sound impressive here. Um, Is he afraid to play his, like, ace lest it get trumped, right? Is kind of the sense that I have. Um... He uh, he's not sure. He doesn't know anymore in the in this new context how impressive that deed that first deed of his actually was. Right, that's my guess anyway as to why he doesn't talk about it here. Um, and yeah, as Stephen says, if he valued practical magic over flashy magic, he probably wouldn't be at Roke in the first place. Uh, and that seems uh, that seems right. Um, yeah, Brian says the only real high road he has to take here is to quote words from Ogion that he doesn't really understand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah, and there you go, uh, uh, Kate, you're right. Like, his um, his playing the Wee Gauntishman card there, right? He's on the one hand, that's 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 a tough place to be, right? Because on the one hand, he's uh, banking on the reputation of Gaunt for wizards, right? Well, Gaunt is famous for wizards, we're told in the first sentence. So, you know, he's a Gauntishman. That's something to be proud of at wizard school, right? But at the same time, a little pressure, right? Um, he's got to live up to, uh, you know, so he characterizes Gauntishman as having a completely different and far more mature attitude towards magic, right? We don't play this game for pleasure or praise. Um, But he can't think of a good thing to say that they do play it for. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, And good. Arthur, I was noticing that too. Arthur draws attention to the fact that Jasper's laughter is not ill-humored. He's not laughing mockingly. Uh, at Ged. I mean, Jasper is, he was, a, he was insensitive at the least. Uh, you know, he has been willing to be confrontational when he's been met by Ged's rudeness. And he was a little insensitive at uh, kind of showing Ged up a little unfairly here. Um, but he's not, um, uh, he's not really being, like the antagonist here yet, right? I mean, he's not acting. Um, this could be made to sound worse than it is, but I agree, that's not really the emphasis here. Um, yeah, he's not Malfoy yet, Arthur, exactly. He's, uh, uh, yes, yes. He is not yet acting like Draco Malfoy. Well, speaking about illusion and change, let's talk more about that. The master hand looked at the jewel that glittered on Ged's palm. So Ged has just made an illusion, you know, taken a rock and made an illusion uh, of the uh, of of a gem. And he's asked, "What can I say to make the transformation permanent?" The master hand looked at the jewel that glittered on Ged's palm, bright as the prize of a dragon's hoard. 
The old master murmured one word, talk, and there lay the pebble, no jewel but a rough gray bit of rock. The master took it and held it out on his own hand. This is a rock, talk, in the true speech, he said, looking mildly up at Ged now. A bit of the stone of which Roke Isle is made, a little bit of the dry land on which men live. It is itself. It is part of the world. By the illusion change, you can make it look like a diamond, or a flower, or a fly, or an eye, or a flame. The rock flickered from shape to shape as he named them, and returned to rock. But that is mere seeming. Illusion fools the beholder's senses. It makes him see and hear and feel that the thing is changed. But it does not change the thing. To change this rock into a jewel, you must change its true name. And to do that, my son, even to so small a scrap of the world, is to change the world. It can be done. Indeed, it can be done. It is the art of the master changer, and you will learn it when you are ready to learn it. But you must not change one thing, one pebble, one grain of sand, until you know what good and evil will follow on that act. The world is in balance, in equilibrium. A wizard's power of changing and of summoning can shake the balance of the world. It is dangerous, that power. It is most perilous. It must follow knowledge and serve need. To light a candle is to cast a shadow. He says, just kind of pulling an arbitrary example. To light a candle is to cast a shadow. Um... Yeah, Tomas is a good question. He says, other than references to the old speech or the true speech, is there mention of several different languages spoken in the different parts of the archipelago, or does everybody speak the same language? I'm not remembering. Does anybody remember? Uh, Tomas, just as you say, to me, the primary difference that I keep coming back to is like the difference between the modern spoken language and and the true speech. Okay, there. I okay. So there are references to other languages. Um, yeah, there are right. Kargish, right? The Kargs speak a different language. Right, right. Okay. Yep. There definitely are different languages. Um, we don't. We're not kind of. That's not something that the book shows very much interest in. Like we're not told. What language are they speaking? Why are they speaking? Like, what is chosen as the, like, you know, common language of Roke? Why that one and not another one? I don't know that we've been told any of those things yet. Um, but the primary distinction, uh, Tomas, as you were saying, is the difference between um, the conventional languages, right? That is, languages which are mere convention and the old speech or the true speech, right? The true speech in which things are named by their true names. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Arthur, everyone in this book keeps making shadow references to Ged, and sooner or later he's going to get it. Well, he'll get it when the shadow bites it, like, eats, eats his face. But uh, anyway... Um, To do that, my son, even to so small a scrap of the world, is to change the world. Um, 
Notice the lesson that he tries to teach Ged here and how similar it is to the lessons that Ogion was trying to teach him, right? Um, can you change a rock into a diamond? Yeah, you can totally do that. You have to, and notice the process, right? To do that, to change this rock into a jewel, you must change its true name. Um, which, of course, reminds me of, um, which reminds me of, of Ogion's own naming of Ged, right? We saw Ged have his name, his true name changed, right? His name changed from Dooney to Ged. Um, uh, and that process seems to be, in some way, similar here, right? But it's a big deal to change something's true name is a big deal and how how do you do it right you only should do it if you understand right and look at the way he talks about that i love the way he talks about the rock right this is a pebble this is a worthless little pebble right it is a bit of the stone of which roke isle is made a little bit of the dry land on which men live right you have to understand the whole thing, right? What is it? What is its purpose? What is its, uh, you know, what is its, what is it in all of its seasons and senses and everything else, right? Um, only by understanding it and its role and the consequences of the change will you be able to um, make sure you're not shaking the balance of the world, right? Um, it is dangerous, that power. It is most perilous. It must follow knowledge and serve need. Um, yeah. It must follow knowledge and serve need. Um, the... There's a difference, right, between how magic works in the sense of how you can do magic and the moral sense of how you should do magic, right? Ged is, of course, really good at the first one. Naturally good, but quite bad at the second one. Um, and Because it, it's clear that although he can say it must follow knowledge and serve need, it's not really true. It mustn't. It should. But it doesn't have to. You can do it without knowledge. Ged has done that twice already. First with the goats, right? When he didn't know what he was doing. And secondly, when he read the spell in the dark, right? And summoned the shadow the first time in Ogeon's house. He didn't know what he was doing then either, right? The power was not following knowledge. It was going way ahead of knowledge. And it neither time was serving need. It was serving whim or bad motivations, right? Um, he's been, the candles he's been lighting has been uh, uh, casting, it seems, disproportionately long shadows. Uh, so we get all these warnings, which, of course, Ged is still uh, rather ignorant of. Um,
Ged's rivalry with Jasper. Even foolery is dangerous, said Jasper, in the hands of a fool. At that, Ged turned as if he had been slapped and took a step towards Jasper, but the older boy smiled as if he had not intended any insult and nodded his head in his stiff, graceful way and went on. Standing there with rage in his heart, looking after Jasper, Ged swore to himself to outdo his rival, and not in some mere illusion match, but in a test of power. He would prove himself and humiliate Jasper. He would not let the fellow stand there looking down at him, graceful, disdainful, hateful. Ged did not stop to think why Jasper might hate him. He only knew why he hated Jasper. The other apprentices had soon learned they could seldom match themselves against Ged, either in sport or in earnest, and they said of him, some in praise and some in spite, he's a wizard born, he'll never let you beat him. Jasper alone neither praised him nor avoided him, but simply looked down at him, smiling slightly. And therefore Jasper stood alone as his rival, who must be put to shame. His own insecurity, of course, is very clear. Um, Jasper is now definitely acting like a bit of a jerk to him. But, um, I don't know, it's hard for me to just hate on Jasper here. It really is. Um, Ged's reaction um, is quite disproportionate, really, it seems to me. Um Ged did not stop to think why Jasper might hate him. A, because it's not clear Jasper does hate Ged, exactly. Um, and secondly, because, gosh, if he did that, he might be reflecting on how he himself is acting like a jerk to Jasper on a fairly regular basis. Um, uh And his hatred... Um, for Jasper, right, is very strong and very pointed, right? It is not enough for him to prove himself. It is not enough for him to do well and earn the praise of others. He must humiliate Jasper. He has to bring Jasper down. He would not let the fellow stand there looking down at him, graceful, disdainful, hateful. Graceful, disdainful, hateful, right? Um, notice the first one is just a compliment. Jasper is graceful, and that makes him hate him more. He is disdainful, looking down at me, right? Um, and he is hateful, but hateful primarily in the fact that Ged's hate is targeting him. Um... Yeah, as Curita says, insecurity levels high, self-awareness levels low. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and notice the reputation he's getting of others, right? The spite that others feel against him. The other apprentices had soon learned they could seldom match themselves against Ged either in sport or in earnest. And they said of him some in praise and some in spite. He's a wizard born. He'll never let you beat him. Right? Other people feel the same way towards him that he feels towards Jasper, and for probably just as much reason, if not better reason. Um, yeah. 
Interesting, Jocelyn. It's not quite the same progression as traveling wizards, tinkers, beggars, uh, but it is an interesting parallel. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, um, it's a it's a similar kind of kind of decline in a sense, right? Um, yeah, Kimber, I agree. The narrator is pointing out how narrow Ged's mindset is. Uh, we're supposed to have real concerns about Ged's personality. Absolutely. Ged sighed sometimes, but he did not complain. This is uh, when he's off in the uh, in the in the isolate tower with a namer. He saw that in this dusty and fathomless matter of learning the true name of every place, thing, and being, the power he wanted lay like a jewel at the bottom of a dry well. For magic consists in this, the true naming of a thing. So Kurum Karmaruk had said to them, once, their first night in the tower. He never repeated it, but Ged did not forget his words. Hey, hey, that's a step forward. Many a mage of great power, he had said, has spent his whole life to find out the name of one single thing. One single lost or hidden name. And still the lists are not finished, nor will they be till world's end. Listen, and you will see why. In the world under the sun, and in the other world that has no sun, there is much that has nothing to do with men and men's speech, and there are powers beyond our power. But magic, true magic, is worked only by those who speak the hardic tongue of Earthsea, or the old speech from which it grew. Okay, so true magic is only worked through, so the old speech, the naming of things, that is the true naming of a thing. Magic consists in this, the true naming of a thing, right? Um, this is boring, but really important, um, really important uh, stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, Arthur. Um, uh Arthur is uh, talking about how um, uh, the master namer reminds him of gross anatomy class uh, in med school. Um, yeah, Arthur, I, I, you know, it does make me think of the, um, uh, I mean, I spent a fair bit of time, you know, my, uh, my wife was in gross anatomy right after we were married. And uh, I spent a lot of time quizzing her on, you know, all the different bones and joints and nerves and, and, uh, tendons and everything. Uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah, it, um, it is a lot like the master name or you're totally right. Um, unfortunately knowing the names of all of the different parts of the body doesn't give you power over them. Um, uh, but, um, I guess it's still a step. Um, anyway, um, This is true magic. So again, illusion, not really true magic, right? As the last guy was teaching. Um, yeah, Devorah, I agree. Um, uh, uh, you know, they must not be true names then, right? It's because in Gross Anatomy, you didn't learn the names in the old speech, obviously. That's really, that's really the problem. Exactly, exactly. Had you done that, you'd have been in a better spot. So I think you should talk to the med school folks about this. Here's the reason. The sea's name is Inian, well and good. But what we call the inmost sea has its own name also in the old speech. Since no thing can have two true names, Inian can mean only all the sea except the inmost sea. 
And of course it does not mean even that, for there are seas and bays and straits beyond counting that bear names of their own. So if some mage seamaster were mad enough to try to lay a spell of storm or calm over all the ocean, his spell must say not only that word Inian, but the name of every stretch and bit and part of the sea through all the archipelago and all the outer reaches and beyond to where the name cease. Thus, that which gives us the power to work magic sets the limits of that power. A mage can control only what is near him, what he can name exactly and wholly, and this is well. If it were not so, the wickedness of the powerful or the folly of the wise would long ago have sought to change what cannot be changed, and equilibrium would fail. The unbalanced sea would overwhelm the islands where we perilously dwell, and in the old silences all voices and all names would be lost. And in the old silence all voices and all names would be lost. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a really, those last two sentences are really good sentences, aren't they? If it were not so, the wickedness of the powerful or the folly of the wise would long ago have sought to change what cannot be changed, and equilibrium would fail. The unbalanced sea would overwhelm the islands where we perilously dwell, and in the old silence all voices and all names would be lost. Man. So, naming not only gives them power, it restricts the power. And in this way, of course, it is true that power must follow knowledge. Because with no knowledge at all, right, without any knowledge, there can be no power. Because you can only command the goats if you know the charm that commands the goats, right? Um, so he might have uttered that charm without any knowledge, without any wisdom, right? Understanding of the consequences of his action. Um, and yet he still had to know it. And it was restricted. It was only the goats and only his goats that answered. Notice he wasn't stampeded by every goat on the Isle of Gaunt or every goat on the in, in Earthsea, right? It was only those goats, that responded again, limited by the fact that, um, you know, is it like, um, yeah, yeah. Ooh, Mark, I think you're probably right. Uh, Mark is saying the old silence. Does that mean only in silence the word? Like the silence that came before the word? Uh, as uh, uh, celebrated in the poem, the beginning, you know, about the beginning of Ea. Um yeah, that's a great, that's a, that's a good theory. I like that. Um, yeah, the folly of the wise is a really great expression there, Yana. Um, the wickedness of the powerful or the folly of the wise. That parallelism is fascinating because the wickedness of the powerful seems intuitive, that the powerful are often wicked is not a surprise. That the wise should often be foolish seems at first more of a surprise. But in the end, I'm not sure it is, right? The wise are often foolish in some ways. Um, and, uh, you know, so if there, if there were no restrictions, then the powerful and the wise would have sought to change what cannot be changed, and equilibrium would fail. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. He fell asleep with a peaceful heart, there in the cold darkness, full of the whisper of water. At dawn waking, he lifted his head. The rain had ceased, he saw, and so that he's uh, coming home from the naming tower. The rain had ceased. He saw, sheltered in the folds of his cloak, a little animal curled up asleep, which had crept there for warmth. He wondered, seeing it, for it was a rare, strange beast, an otak. These creatures are found only on four southern isles of the archipelago, Roke, Ensmer, Pody, and Wathort. They are small and sleek, with broad faces, and fur dark brown or brindle, and great bright eyes. Their teeth are cruel and their temper fierce, so they are not made pets of. They have no call or cry or any voice. Ged stroked this one, and it woke and yawned, showing a small brown tongue and white teeth, but it was not afraid. Otak, he said, and then remembering the thousand names of beasts he had learned in the tower, he called it by its true name in the old speech. Hoig, do you want to come with me? The Otak set itself down on his open hand and began to wash its fur. So he's just been learning about names, right? We just got all this stuff about, uh, you know, power and the limitations of power and the necessity of maintaining equilibrium and all that stuff. And um, uh, then walking back, he meets the Otak, or rather the Otak meets him. One thing that I can't help but do here is contrast this with his relationship with animals before, right? We saw him command the goats and how eerie and unnatural that was, right? We saw him command the falcons and hawks, right? Um, bringing, you know, constraining them to come down, summoning them down to his wrist, Um this is very different, right? Um, first off, he calls the Otak by its name, right? Which would seem to give him power over it. But there's no charm, right? He doesn't utter a charm. He asks its opinion, right? Asks for its own choice. Do you want to come with me? He says. Calling it by its real name, right? So he uses its name. He uses the power that has been given to him through his through in in the tower right one of those names he just memorized and yet the otak had already chosen him before um uh before he did that yeah as arthur says the otak has chosen a familiar right yeah yeah um uh I agree, Karita. It does seem significant that he asks instead of demanding. Um, he seems very... He seems to be having a very Ogion kind of moment here, right? Um, this is the, really the first time on his own that he has looked like, seemed like, um, uh, Ogion, right? Sounded like Ogion. It does seem... Devorah, like his time in the tower, did him some good. Um, 
Uh, and he is more polite to the Otak than he is uh, to anyone else so far, uh, human or otherwise. Um, notice also that he was sleeping under the rain, just like Ogeon used to do, because, of course, you can't work weather. You can't do weather working on Rok. Um, but remember how he was complaining about that when he was with Ogeon before? Um, he's given this opportunity to see how, like, restricted magic works and is meant to work. That spring, Ged saw little of either Vetch or Jasper, for they, being sorcerers, studied now with the master Patterner in the secrecy of the Imminent Grove. Awesome name, by the way, the Imminent Grove. I cannot get enough of the Imminent Grove. Where no prentice might set foot. Ged stayed in the great house, working with the masters at all the skills practiced by sorcerers, those who work magic but carry no staff, wind-bringing, weather-working, finding and binding, and the arts of spellsmiths and spellwrights, tellers, chanters, heel-alls, and herbalists. At night alone in his sleeping cell, a little ball of wear-light burning above the book in place of lamp or candle, he studied the further runes and the runes of Ea, which are used in the great spells. All these crafts came easy to him, and it was rumored among the students that this master or that had said that the gauntish lad was the quickest student that had ever been at Roke, and tales grew up concerning the Otak, which was said to be a disguised spirit who whispered wisdom in Ged's ear, and it was even said that the Archmage's raven had hailed Ged at his arrival as Archmage-to-be. On the one hand, Ged is getting what he wanted, right? He's getting recognition. We're not told anything about his response to these stories, right? To these rumors, um, to this fame that is spreading out around him. Um, uh, I agree, Arthur. Somebody does need to uh, whisper uh, wisdom in Ged's ear. And if it's the Otox job, he should probably be fired, Um but I think it's much safer bet that he get it just isn't listening to him. Um, but Devorah, I agree. It does seem that he's still not satisfied, right? What does he focus on? What does Ged focus on? Ged focuses on still wanting to bring Jasper down a peg, right? He is not satisfied with the fact that he is. I mean, even if he wanted to compare himself with Jasper, there's no question that he is proceeding faster than Jasper did, right? That he Jasper's older than he is. He's been at the school longer than he is, right? Um, and yet, he still fixates on that, right? He does not, I agree, Devorah seems satisfied um, with the f getting what he th thought he wanted, right? Getting this kind of fame, having people acknowledge his power and his skill. Um, we have learned, finally, the difference between a sorcerer and a wizard, right? That it is, in fact, a rank thing. Right. You are apprentice for a while and then you become a sorcerer and then you become a wizard. Right. When you get your staff um, and the skills practiced by sorcerers. So things that sorcerers can do that, uh, uh, you know, so uh, wizards can do anything sorcerers can and more. But the sorcerers can do lots of things. Wind bringing, weather working, finding and binding. The arts of spell smiths and spell rites don't know the difference between a spellsmith and a spell spellwright kind of sounds similar to me, but uh, I'm interested. Tellers, chanters, heal-alls, and herbalists. Um, so those are that's those are like 
career paths, right, for sorcerers who don't become wizards. So, Tomas, my guess, my understanding is that mage is more generic. Majory seemed to be, um, and saying he was a mage born, just mean seems to mean somebody who can do magic, right? Somebody who has that kind of talent, that kind of gift, like Sparrowhawk had in great abundance uh, and showed in great abundance as a kid. So I think that mage is the most generic. And then you've got uh, prentice sorcerer and and wizard, and then like witch sort of, you know, around, down around over there. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, Stephen. Stephen, you said that so... A, a, a wizard is a chief of staff. I totally thought that was Arthur. Like I saw your comment and I assumed it was Arthur. Um, <laughs> oh man. Must be getting late. All right, let's keep going. As for the calling of real things and living people and the raising up of spirits of the dead and the invocations of the unseen, those spells, which are the heights of the summoner's art and the mage's power, those he scarcely spoke of, he scarcely spoke of to them. Once or twice, Ged tried to lead him to talk a little of such mysteries. This is the Master Summoner he's talking to. But the Master was silent, looking at him long and grimly, till Ged grew uneasy and said no more. Sometimes, indeed, he was uneasy working even such lesser spells as the Summoner taught him. There were certain runes on certain pages of the lore book that seemed familiar to him, though he did not remember in what book he had ever seen them before. Hmm, I wonder where. There were certain phrases that must be said in spells of summoning that he did not like to say. They made him think for an instant of shadows in a dark room, of a shut door and shadows reaching out to him from the corner by the door. Um, yeah. Um, Arthur's wondering, has he suppressed that memory or did Ogion do it? I think he is. Um, and I don't know that he's necessarily um, completely suppressing the memory exactly. Um, I mean, it is possible that uh, he's not sure what book he's seen them in before, but it's clear that he's not unaware of the fact that this is the remnant of that experience, you know, that, that, that he's being haunted by the memories of that experience with the, with the summoning of the shadow. Um, his discomfort seems to show that, right? There are certain phrases that he did not like to say. Um, and he knows why he doesn't like to say them because they made him think of shadows in a dark room or of a shut door and shadows reaching out to him from the corner by the door. Is he summoning the shadows, or are the shadows summoning him? Right. Um, but notice, for all that, for all of his discomfort with summoning, um, for all of the, the ways in which he's being haunted by the ill use he made of a summoning spell before, um, the ignorance with which he said that, with ignorance of the consequences. This, of course, is one of the consequences, right? Um, but nevertheless, notice what he's doing. He is trying to push the summoner to reveal to him the mysteries, right? Um, the calling of real things and living people and the raising up of spirits of the dead and the invocations of the unseen. Those sound especially perilous, right? 
We're not talking about naming a rat or, or an otak, which is like a rat, right? Um, we're talking about um, invocations of the unseen. That's got to be perilous. Who knows what's the unseen? What kind of old powers there are uh, in the earth that could be invoked? And if named, could come, which might be uncomfortable. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I agree, Brian. He does have a long-standing habit of ignoring warning signs. That's certainly true. Um, so the the pairing here of these two paragraphs, I thought, was interesting. The way that he's pushing, he wants to know the mysteries. He wants to be taught how to raise the spirits of the dead. Um, and the Master Summoner is having none of it, right? Um, his ambition to do things of real power, just like he was saying with the, with the Master Namer, right? Uh, no, wait, no, not the Namer. Uh, the Hand, right? Hey, I can make an illusion of, on this rock, which is cool and stuff, but whatever. I want to change it, right? I want to do... Um, so He doesn't just want to be viewed as powerful. He doesn't just want to be praised by his peers and looked at as awesome by everybody. He desires real power. Um, and you know, to have the greatest of the, uh, uh, of the, of the powers. And that's uncomfortable. Now we come to the big night. I know we're late. Mm. Let's push through just, I know I started super late tonight and I'm feeling guilty and we're going to not be able to meet next week. So let's push through, uh, here a little bit. Um, Ged says at the big party. Ged turned to face Jasper. What do sorcerers have that prentices lack, he inquired. His voice was quiet, but all the other boys suddenly fell still, for in his tone as in Jasper's, the spite between them now sounded plain and clear as steel coming out of a sheath. Power, Jasper said. I'll match your power, act for act. You challenge me? I challenge you. Vetch had dropped down to the ground, and now he came between them, grim of face. Duels in sorcery are forbidden to us, and well you know it. Let this cease. Both Ged and Jasper stood silent, for it was true they knew the law of Roke, and they also knew that Vetch was moved by love and themselves by hate. Yet their anger was balked, not cooled. Presently, moving a little aside as if to be heard by Vetch alone, Jasper spoke with his cool smile. I think you'd better remind your goat-herd friend again of the law that protects him. He looks sulky. I wonder, did he really think I'd accept a challenge from him? A fellow who smells of goats? A prentice who doesn't know the first change? Jasper, said Ged, what do you know of what I know? No man. Um... Yeah, Devorah, I agree. Vetch is awesome. Like, as much as I don't really like uh, uh, Ged's character, um, you know, and can't really admire him. I, um, uh, Vetch is awesome, isn't he? Um, okay, Jasper, now very definitely uh, uh, being a jerk, right? You know, he's, he's, he's definitely uh, um, uh, prodding uh, Ged here. Um, you've got to think that if there's 
like the what do sorcerers have that prentices lack? Get asks Jasper. Power has got to be the worst thing he could possibly have answered, right? Um, uh, that I have, I have power and you do not. Um, and his immediate need to prove himself, right? Um, to humiliate Jasper once and for all. You claim to have power that I don't have. I will match your power act for act. What do you know of what I know? I don't have to do anything, goat herd, yet I will. I will give you a chance, an opportunity. Envy eats you like wor- like a worm in an apple. Let's let out the worm. Once by Roknoll you boasted that gauntish wizards don't play games. Come to Roknoll now and show us what it is they do instead. And afterward, maybe, I will show you a little sorcery. Yes, I should like to see that, Ged answered. The younger boys, used to seeing his black temper break out at the least hint of slight or insult, watched him in wonder at his coolness now. Vetch watched him not in wonder, but with growing fear. He tried to intervene again, but Jasper said, Come, keep out of this, Vetch. What will you do with the chance I give you, goatherd? Will you show us an illusion? A fireball? A charm to cure goats with the mange? What would you like me to do, Jasper? The older lad shrugged. Summon up a spirit from the dead for all I care. Um, this, by the way, seems to me one of the most damning sentences of Ged and his character uh, in this first part of the book that we've gotten yet. The younger boys used to seeing his black temper break out at the least hint of slight or insult. That's not a good look. Right. This is not I mean, this is someone who is insecure, but someone whose insecurity has led him to black tempers that break out at the least hint of slight or insult. Right. It sounds like he is a bit of the bully, a a bit of a bully to the younger boys. Right. Anybody who challenges him, anybody who seems like a threat, anybody who even who does or says anything that even hints at a slight, uh, and he is furious, right? Carita, you're right. Jasper is not completely wrong. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree. I agree. Um, you know, as Stephen says, he's definitely insulting Ged, but I'm not sure we can really blame him, given how much Ged has rejected all of his attempts at friendship. Yeah. Um, I do not think it would be hard to write a story from Jasper's point of view, right? In which Ged just looks like, oh, a complete menace, right? I mean, this guy is just a huge problem. Um, Jasper, even Jasper's jibes, calling him goat herd and stuff like that. Um, You know, I think that Jasper is not handling Ged really well, but that's... Um, not, I don't know. That's not a super big insult, right? Um, come to Roke Knoll now and show us what it is they do instead. So challenging him to put everything on the line. You claim you can match me power for power, right? Um, you boasted about gauntish wizards, right? You've claimed to be, you know, 
like the greatest of the great and equal to me who am already a sorcerer and you're only apprentice. Um, summon up a spirit from the dead for all I care. Why does he say that exactly? Um, how calculated is that? Have there been stories, rumors about Ged's trying to do that before with Ogion? I can't imagine he talks about it much and nobody else would have any way of knowing, but, um, um, yeah. Kimber says that Jasper's error is in taunting the unpredictable, stormy, talented kid until they both enter into something dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. He should have had the wisdom not to do this, right? He should not be rising to the provocation that Ged is by his whole attitude offering to him. Um, but he does. Um, he did ask those questions of the Master Summoner, James. You're right about that. Um, it is possible. I doubt that Ogion's been tweeting about the incident, Stephen. That seems very unlikely. Um, uh, Ogion's Twitter... I can't imagine that Ogion would be a good Twitter follow, to be totally honest. Right? Uh, I mean, it would, actually, it'd be really kind of funny to... Uh, uh, It'd be a very funny inside joke to create a Twitter account for Ogion and and never tweet anything. Um, that would be that would be a very funny inside joke. Um, but, but but anyway, um, yeah, Michelle, I do agree that it sounds like um, <laughs> Brian says months go by with no tweets and then picture uh, a picture of rocks or something. Yeah, exactly, something like that. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, Michelle thinks it sounds like Jasper's throwing out some sort of standard impossible dare. That seems possible. Of course, we know it to be fairly conspicuous. He did not even listen for Jasper's reply, if he made one. He no longer cared about Jasper. Now that they stood on Roke Knoll, hate and rage were gone, replaced by utter certainty. He need envy no one. He knew that his power this night on this dark enchanted ground was greater than it had ever been, filling him till he trembled with the sense of strength barely kept in check. He knew now that Jasper was far beneath him, had been sent, perhaps, only to bring him here tonight, no rival but a mere servant of Ged's destiny. Under his feet he felt the hill roots going down and down into the dark, and over his head he saw the dry, far fires of the stars." Between, all things were his to order, to command. He stood at the center of the world. <laughs> okay. Uh, how to know when you're going down the wrong path. <laughs> this is, when you start feeling like this, that's, that's really, that's really, that's really the problem. Yes, Fanor syndrome, Arthur. Yeah, it's his kind of Fanor syndrome. Absolutely. Um, good. Um, James is wondering, James Liebach says, Do, does this all come from his own ego or is someone or something whispering to him here? That's a wonderful question, James. Again, is he summoning the shadows or are the shadows summoning him? We know that a shadow has been following him. Um, And I don't know that that's really an answerable question, but um, first of all, 
Jasper again wasn't wrong before. Envy does eat Ged. He is envious. Um, he is envious of Jasper. Jasper has... What does Jasper have? Jasper has power, seniority, admiration, but, Je but Jasper has confidence, right? Jasper isn't threatened by Ged. Annoyed, apparently, but not really, um, uh, not really threatened. Remember, graceful, disdainful, hateful. The change there, just as, and again, Jocelyn, I'm coming back to your parallel with the traveling wizards uh, and then down to beggars, right? The change, in both of those cases, the change is Ged's own perception, right? Um, as he sort of recontextualizes things and sees things differently. He's so graceful. He's so disdainful. He's so hateful. Right. It's just like it's like seeing the same thing in three different ways, uh, increasingly with increasing frustration. Um, yeah, he 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 belong. He has a belonging in the greater world. Jocelyn agreed from his pedigree on, you know, and through his natural grace and uh, even the courtesy that he showed to get at the beginning. Right. You know, he was um, uh, it's interesting because. In that first moment, when Jasper reached out to Ged upon his arrival, Jasper did speak like and kind of represent an insider, right? Somebody who is at home here at Roke. Um, now, he was reaching out to Ged, inviting him in, inviting to bring him in, and help to make him an insider, too. But instead, Ged merely felt threatened by that, envious of that insiderness, of that comfort and grace and courtesy. Um, which Ged himself didn't have. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> St Stephen is suggesting Ged is now thoroughly under the control of the Otak. <laughs> the, the, real, the real villain of the piece. Yeah, yeah, possibly, possibly. Uh, Arthur is suggesting it might, in fact, be the one Otak to rule them all. It is possible. Um... Yeah, it is, it is, it is, can't absolutely rule it out, except I kind of feel like we can. But who knows? Let me not be rash. Um, think of the contrast between this, the parallel and yet the contrast between this and Ged's, that feeling that Ged had when he first looked in the eyes of the Archmage upon arriving at Roke. Right, that sense of you know being a word spoken by the sunlight, of being in touch with everything, you know, understanding the the speech of everything around him and the shape and the nature of everything. He feels very similarly to that here, except it's all about him, right? Um, this passage is almost like the opposite of that other one. Yeah, yeah. Um, good, Kate. Exactly. Jasper is at ease with himself which Ged is not. That itself is, is grounds for envy. Right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So then he does the spell, the summoning spell, the one that he now remembers and understands. Um, he's holding this huge shapeless mass of darkness in his arms. 
The shapeless mass of darkness he had lifted split apart. It sundered, and a pale spindle of light gleamed between his opened arms, a faint oval reaching from the ground up to the height of his raised hands. In the oval of light for a moment there moved a form, a human shape, a tall woman looking back over her shoulder. Her face was beautiful and sorrowful and full of fear. Gosh, Jocelyn, there it is again. The three things with the downward descent. Beautiful, sorrowful, full of fear. Right? Only for a moment did the spirit glimmer there. Then the sallow oval between Ged's arms grew bright. It widened and spread, a rent in the darkness of the earth and night, a ripping open of the fabric of the world. Through it blazed a terrible brightness, and through that bright misshapen breach clambered something like a clot of black shadow, quick and hideous, and it leaped straight out at Ged's face. Staggering back under the weight of the thing, Ged gave a short, hoarse scream. The little Otak, watching from Vetch's shoulder, the animal that had no voice, screamed aloud also, and leaped as if to attack. Only in light, the darkness, right? Um, the terrible brightness that comes through the rip in the fabric of the world. And through that bright, misshapen breach clambers something like a clot of black shadow. Quick and hideous. What a wonderful pairing of adjectives. Quick and hideous. And it leaped straight out at Ged's face. And clot of shadow. Oh my goodness, yes, what a phrase that is. Karita votes for that as a, a gr gross phrase of the evening. Yeah, it's, it's really disturbing, right? Like a clot of black shadow. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> another medical school reference, <laughs> says Arthur. Having all kinds of medical school flashbacks tonight. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, One of the things that interests me most about this whole situation, I still don't understand anything about the summoning of spirits of the dead. Right? I don't understand what that means. Like, why do you, why is that a thing? Why do you summon the spirits of the dead? Where do you summon them from and what's the purpose of this spell? Right? Why do we do this? Even apparently it's real dangerous, but why do we even do it? Right. Two, why is it harder than summoning anything else? I mean, it sounds impressive and stuff, but like literally, I don't understand because I don't understand where they're summoning them from or why we're doing it. Right. And or what's really involved in doing it. Um, and three, I don't understand the consequences of it at all. Right. So and of course, my confusion and ignorance about this fits. Right. Um Ged doesn't understand it either. Ged doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know what will what the consequences of this action will be. Right? All of those things that he was taught and ignored just like he ignored what Ogion said to him. Right? Um Yeah, great. Jocelyn is remembering that the word clot was used of it uh in Ogion's house too. Absolutely. Um so 
Anyway, the summoning of the spirits of the dead is very mysterious to me. Um, and the fact that he succeeds in summoning the spirit of the dead um, makes it no less mysterious, right? We see her looking back over her shoulder. And I don't know if her face is changing from beautiful to sorrowful to full of fear, or whether that's just Ged's perspective on it changing as he sees, like, his first reaction is that she's beautiful, his second reaction is that she's sorrowful, and his third is that she's terrified. Um, and looking back over her shoulder, does anybody understand what direction she's facing? Like, is she coming towards him? Maybe I missed this. Is she coming towards him and looking back behind her? So he's only seeing, like, the side and back of her head? Or is she looking back over her shoulder at Ged? See what I mean? Like, is she going away and he calls her up and she's like, Oh, hey, yo, what's up? I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, she's not just saying what's up because she's terrified, apparently. But, um... Uh, and yeah, Karita, exactly. That's what I'm wondering. So, like, what she's scared of, exactly. He can see her face. Um, yeah, so, okay, so first of all, you look at the text, like the paragraph before, and I, I'm, not, I'm not missing anything, right? We, we don't know for sure what direction she's facing. I, I, I kind of, I'm not sure here. Um but anyway, um, we, uh, yeah, Christopher, it is hard to separate out knowledge that we gain later. It's easier for me because I haven't read the rest of the Earthsea books in so long. I've functionally forgotten them. So I kind of am coming at this with almost perfect ignorance, not quite perfect, with uh, only barely imperfect ignorance uh, about the rest of Earthsea. So I'm, I'm, uh, it's a lot easier for me to play this game right now than it normally is, like when we're doing Exploring the Lord of the Rings. Um, but um, exactly, Jocelyn. Well, that's my question. What's she afraid of? Is she looking back at Ged in fear? Or is she looking back at the shadow? So is she emerging into the land of the living? And she's like, hi, but, whoa, no, I'm being chased by a clot, right? Is that what's happening? Or is she moving away from Ged and looking back at him like, what is, who's calling me from back over there behind me? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the looking back over her shoulder reminds me both, Michelle, those are both excellent Um yeah, is this uh, is this like Eurydice or Lot's wife? Great question. Great question. Um, yep. <clears throat> well, I think we'll we'll learn some more about this later. Um, I, if I had to guess, I think she's facing away and looking back at Ged, and is looking back in fear at the rip that he has made in the fabric of the world in order to bring her back uh, into the world of the living. <clears throat> and then the shadow pounces. Especially, and here's the other thing that particularly makes me think that, if she's facing towards Ged and she's looking over her shoulder at the shadow coming up behind her, that suggests that the shadow is further away than she is. 
And I think it's pretty clear that the shadow is already pretty close to get, right? Um, it's, uh, I think it's not, it's not like calling in from the distance, right? It's just springing through the, uh, the rip that he's made there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, But I agree, Jocelyn, the idea of her coming towards him because he's summoning her is also very intuitive. So I think it could be working. It could be working either way. The looking back over her shoulder might have nothing to do with him at all, right? This might just be like catching her in a tableau, which... Because... We have to at least entertain the possibility that Ged is not actually the center of the universe, right? But, but it might it might have nothing to do with him at all. Okay. This will be our last slide, then I'll finally let you go. The intolerable brightness faded, and slowly the torn edges of the world closed together. Nearby, a voice was speaking as softly as a tree whispers or a fountain plays. Starlight began to shine again, and the grasses of the hillside were whitened with the light of the moon just rising. The night was healed. Restored and steady lay the balance of light and dark. The shadow beast was gone. Ged lay sprawled on his back, his arms flung out as if they yet kept the wide gesture of welcome and invocation. His face was blackened with blood, and there were great black stains on his shirt. The little Otak cowered by his shoulder, quivering. And above him stood an old man whose cloak glimmered pale in the moonrise, the archmage Nemerly. The end of Nemerly's staff hovered silvery above Ged's breast. Once gently it touched him over the heart, once on the lips, while Nemerly whispered. Ged stirred, and his lips parted, gasping for breath. Then the old archmage lifted the staff and set it to earth, and leaned heavily on it with bowed head, as if he had scarcely strength to stand." Um, heart, lips. It does sound like CPR. Not exactly. Um, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Um, how did Ogion heal him? This is the second time we have seen Ged knocked out by a spell which he cast. This time he got his face chewed off also, but in addition, right? I mean, this is, apart from that, parallel. Yes, with Ogion, Ogion touched him on the forehead and the lips, right? And then he recovered as soon as he touched him on the... F he laid his head on the forehead and then touched his lips. Um, here he is setting his staff over his heart and then on the lips, um, the lips is the, the common denominator, right? Between these two healings, forehead, lips, heart, lips, right? Are the way these two healings go. Um, and knowing what we now know, we didn't have any way to really figure this out too clearly before. Um, it seems to be about calling him, right? Calling his name, um, calling him back. 
Um, and I remember, of course, how Ogion immediately after this was like, we need to get him a name, Stat. Right. Um, <laughs> sorry. Sorry. See, Arthur, you've got me thinking all medical now. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, exactly. Exactly. Um, and good, Devorah, I agree that Nemerly is speaking now and Ogion didn't. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and Kate is pointing out how that second sentence in the first paragraph calls back the imagery from when he first met uh, the Archmage. Yeah. Nearby, a voice was speaking as softly as a tree whispers or a fountain plays. Exactly. It's like a memory of that moment when he understood the sound of everything around him. Right. Equilibrium is restored. Um, and he is called back and Nemerly dies. The Archmage sacrifices his life in order to save Ged's life here. Um, and that's a really important thing, right? We'll come to understand all of this stuff a little bit better. So starting next time, we will look at this, you know, is, of course, the major turning point in Ged's life, right? And we will look at the post-trauma Ged um, next time. Uh, keep going. I, I'm... Uh, I am meaning to catch up. I think we will. I think we're doing fine. Um, uh, we will do uh, uh, we'll do the the tail end of chapter four, and we'll do five and six next time. We'll be we'll be uh, we'll be back on pace before you know it. Um, next time, by the way, is not going to be um, uh, next week. Uh, next week is the night before. Next Wednesday is the night before Thanksgiving here in America. Uh, I don't think I'm going to be at liberty for class next week based on my understanding. My mother-in-law is coming to visit, and I believe I'm spoken for on Wednesday. So um, we will postpone, and I know a lot of you are going to be traveling probably and stuff. It's a busy time often for folks here in America. So I'm going to plan. We're, we're, we're going to skip next week, uh, and we will come back the week after. So the first Wednesday of December uh, will be our next uh, uh, our next session. So thanks very much, everybody, for joining me. Uh, and I will uh, I will see you guys in a fortnight, if not before. Uh, I mean, in another broadcast. So thanks, everybody. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.